From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. And one of the things that Trump's ascendancy, his election, gave the religious left is basically a collective thing to push against and that they could protest in mass against because they saw Trump and his administration as an existential threat to the survival of either their, their communities or those that they advocate for. And if Trump were to be defeated in the November election, it is unclear how activists in the left in general and activists within the religious left in particular would respond. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jack Jenkins. He's a national reporter for Religion News Service and a former senior religion reporter for Think Progress. His work, which has also been published in The Atlantic and The Washington Post, is cited regularly in The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, MSNBC, CNN, and other top media outlets. He's a graduate of Presbyterian College, and he earned his Master's of Divinity at Harvard University. Today, we're going to be discussing his recent book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Jack Jenkins, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to say at the outset, when I was reading your book, I called to mind a conversation that I had with the Reverend Dr. Brad Braxton. And he's a pastor and a professor, but he's also the curator of African-American religious life at the Smithsonian Institution African American Mm -hmm. History Museum. In my conversation with Dr. Braxton, he said kind of offhand that they intentionally at the Smithsonian did not create an exhibit about African-American religious life, and instead their intention was to show throughout the museum how African-American religious life touched on every aspect of the civic and cultural pieces that they were trying to foreground in the museum. That's the way that I felt reading your book, American Prophets. When I read the book, I looked back at almost the last three decades of history, and suddenly it's like the scales fell from my eyes, and I saw the ways in which the religious left and progressive religious activists have been at work helping to shape the national conversation. So first of all, just from a learning standpoint, I want to congratulate you on just a tour de force of reporting and writing. And as a, you. you're welcome. As a way of getting into that, I want to talk both about the book, but also a little bit about your background and some of the political landscape that we find ourselves in. So why don't we start with asking a little bit about you. You're a graduate of Presbyterian College. You have been spending your career basically reporting on religion. So talk to me a little bit about kind of how you grew up. Like, what did you grow up in a faith tradition, or did you come to a faith tradition in college, or how did you come to be a religious person reporting religion? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And the end answer to your question is uh, I became a person reporting about religion by accident. But, but it's one of those things that makes sense in retrospect. I grew up in the Southeast. I'm, I'm from South Carolina you know, spent most of my life there. And my parents are both Southern. My, my dad from South, was from South Carolina. My mom is from Georgia. And they grew up 
respectively. My dad was a military brat himself, and then he went into the military, and so he grew up military Protestant is the way that he described it, kind of depending on which post he was at. And my mom kind of grew up Baptist. And so, but, so I grew up catching the tail end of my dad's military career because he was, uh, you know, he was in the Army for quite some time, West Point grad, two tours in Vietnam, that sort of thing. So when I was growing up, we moved a little bit. But I caught the tail end of his career, which means we only moved a couple of times. And by the time we landed in South Carolina, which was a you know, homecoming for him, we landed in this small town. And despite the fact that I'd been baptized Methodist in Washington, D.C. when he worked there, by the time we got to South Carolina, the, the Presbyterian church in the town had, according to my mom, had the best kids program. And they had a female pastor, which he thought was really cool. And so that became the reasons that I grew up Presbyterian. Presbyterian Church USA. And so that would turned out to be a very strong church. And so I grew up kind of really attached to that, going to conferences about it, youth conferences in Montreat, North Carolina, things like that. And then when I went to college, I went to Presbyterian College, which is affiliated with the Presbyterian Church USA. And that, you know, that, so there's a strong religious element there. So I kind of had, was steeped in faith is just this thing that you breathe. You know, in the Southeast, one of the, the first question is, what is your name? The second question is, where do you go to church? That's often the reality. And so I grew up in that subtext. Now, granted, growing up in South Carolina and not being Southern Baptist made me a little different than like the vast majority of Protestants in the region because I went to this small little Presbyterian college and then I ended up working in Montreat. Faith became a key component of, you know, both my studies and, you know, who I, what I saw in myself. But when I graduated from college, I uh, originally, I, a lot of my friends were going into seminary and I had sworn up and down that I wouldn't do that. I'd done enough with religion. And I mentioned this in the introduction to the book. I did a little bit of work in politics right outside of college. And basically mostly because it was a bad, that we hadn't had the crash yet, but it was one of those things where it was a guaranteed job and I was supposed to go into the Peace Corps. And my deployment got deferred for a few months. So I joined up working for Obama for a short stint, thinking that I would just kill time before I went and did um, environmental education, which was what I was probably slated to do for the Peace Corps. And then ended up writing that out and applying to divinity school while I was on the campaign at the urging of the president of my, of my college. And so I got in and, you know, after you work in politics for a while, you want to get your soul back. So I went to divinity school and when I landed there, I went to Harvard Divinity School, which was a very, it's a very intentionally interfaith divinity school. And my core interest was this intersection of religion, politics, and media. And I was still, you know, technically, you know, at one point I was on ordination track and another point I was still trying to make my mind. And then I actually was looking for a summer internship one summer. And by happenstance, because I met the editor of the religion news service, because he came and did an event at the school, I, we went to a bar afterwards and I like handed in my resume and like ran away, you know, hoping that something good would come of it. And as it turned out, I did. I got to intern for the religion news service that summer and then was hooked ever since. They hired me on, on contract and it just became this fascinating thing for me to kind of like write about religion and be able to kind of tell these stories and tell stories that I realized I hadn't seen that often in media. And, and just because I had access to all these different faiths in divinity school and had friends in all these different places, it became a, um, a point of interest for me. And that included progressive faith communities. I mentioned this actually in the introduction to the book when I'm writing about the Occupy Wall Street movement. You know, that was, that was happening in Boston at the time. I had people I knew who were involved with that. So it was an easy story to report because I could just kind of run down there and, and learn about a lot, some people I really knew who were participating in this and realizing that so few of their stories were told. And then fast forward a few years and I ended up getting a job at Think Progress, 
where I was their one and now only religion reporter working at the intersection of, of religion and politics there too. And then ended up back at Religion News Service a few years later, kind of had a, a full homecoming arc there. But like I said, it wasn't a thing I, I, I didn't go to college or divinity school thinking I wanted to be a journalist. And I kind of fell into it by accident, but it's been a really fun experience to be able to tell these stories and get to know and report on phenomenon and religious groups that just often don't have their stories told, which of course led into the writing of this book. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're talking today with Jack Jenkins. He's a national reporter for Religion News Service, and we're discussing his recent book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Now, you mentioned that you graduated from college right before the financial crash of 2008. So if my math is correct, you would have been starting high school in the Presbyterian Church USA right around the time when Proposition B was really breaking in the Presbyterian (laughs) Church. And Proposition B, for listeners that don't know, the Presbyterian Church USA was really kind of on the vanguard after the Episcopal Church and a couple of other national denominations to really try and wrestle with the question of the ordination and full inclusion of same-sex attracted LGBTQI people within the church. And so I guess I want to ask you, when that was breaking around the early 2000s, did that make your radar at all in South Carolina in the Presbyterian Church, or was it off the radar and did it come to your attention later? So this is an interesting question because, and I think it says a lot about one of the interests uh, that I have in this book, is if that hit the radar where I was, I didn't hear about it at all. It was this thing where, you know, much later when I was in divinity school and there was these, there were these renewed fights for LGBTQ ordination within the PCUSA, as well as allowing pastors to officiate same-sex marriages. It was then that I was taught that there had been this actual rich historical legacy of activism and pushes within the tradition on this topic. And not just the Presbyterian Church USA, but as you noted, the Episcopal Church. And I had heard of Gene Robinson, like his name had like ended up in newspapers and I had been vaguely aware of his existence before I got to dip school. But before that, when I was in high school, this was not a thing that we were informed of, you know, when we were in Sunday school or you know, youth group or even in the, uh, these, these institutions and these conferences that they would send us to. And so I think that says a lot about how well, even these things, when they show up in the media, they might not trickle down to the average parishioner, the average congregant, or certainly the high school kid like me, who was really far more interested in his band than anything else. And you, you mentioned a moment ago uh, retired Episcopal Bishop Gene Robinson, and we'll be circling back to him a little bit later in the conversation. But as we're kind of filling in your background, I have another question, and that is, when you were getting started reporting on religion, and you said you sort of fell into it by accident— Think back to the Jack Jenkins of several years ago. What did you think you would be reporting on when you started that process? So that's, that's a good question. I think what I kind of ended up doing as a reporter was becoming, I, I was really excited by these stories of folks on the fringes, whatever that meant, right? So like one of the first stories that I sort of started writing about and reported out that my editor at the time thought, okay, this is like, more than casually interesting, was about the different groups that would otherwise be classified as atheists who were kind of talking about religions. And one of them was like Pastafarianism. And another one was Jediism, particularly in the United Kingdom, where you had these faith communities that, I mean, these faith were technically classified in some ways legally as faith communities that were run and operated sometimes in jest by people who would otherwise identify as atheists. And I thought this was like an interesting question and like kind of really dug into those sorts of things. So I, I think 
the niche I ended up filling early on as an intern and then when I was on contract was the reporting of these sorts of unusual faith stories, right? Where there were intersections of religion with economics or culture or politics that just kind of struck people as odd, which it turned out that some of those stories, which seem um, you know, fringy or interesting at the time, it's like, oh, isn't this like, you know, sort of this unusual tidbit? turned out to have much deeper roots and much deeper stories. So that's a long way, way of saying my original thought of me as a reporter was that I was going to be the weird religion reporter. I would cover the weird offbeat stuff. And then I ended up, you know, the, the, the politics part in particular started becoming way more relevant than I expected it to be. For a person who is sort of outside of religious discussions, I think that the distinction between weird religion and very, very important political aspects of religion sometimes gets blurred. And we can talk about that a little little later in (laughs) the conversation. So as you are making that transition and figuring out kind of what your beat is, did you have to get up to speed on politics and the political process? Or was there some aspect of your training that allowed you to sort of naturally step into those conversations as you were preparing to do this kind of reporting? So I could lie and tell you that I had I, my time in politics had just taught me everything about you know this this giant realm and that my upbringing as a religious individual really like well founded me for all these sorts of reporting. The truth was that it was dizzyingly complicated in both directions, and I learned really quickly how little I knew about politics. And the truth is, I like I took maybe one or two poli sci classes in college. I wasn't this big stalwart politico early on. That was kind of this conversion I had in a different direction after college and in um, graduate school. And the same was true for religion. I, you know, I had a relatively good grasp of my own tradition, but one of the things I came to learn when I was in graduate school and then as a reporter was one, I actually didn't know as much as I thought I did about my own tradition. And I certainly knew less than I expected about all these other faiths, you know, wh- whether they were, you know, within the Christian tradition or in just, you know, other directions, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism, et cetera. These are all faiths that you know, you think you understand until you actually talk to people who are within them and you, you start understanding that it's way more nuanced and complicated than you would have expected. And so that became a running theme for me was I remember one of my earliest pieces that they made me write for um, religion news services. They made me go to a hearing on the Hill about some religious liberty debate. I can't remember the exact topic, but I sat in the back thinking, OK, I'll get a couple of quotes from these lawmakers and then I will you know, run over to the Starbucks nearby and file the story. But it became really apparent really quickly that one, I had no idea what they were talking about. And two, I didn't know who these lawmakers were. And so I had pulled up this old app that had every single like member of Congress on my like iPhone and like was like frantically scrolling through to see whose face vaguely resembled the tiny little pictures in the phone and then pulling it up and then like Googling an image of them and realizing who was talking, et cetera, et cetera. And so that whole experience, which turned out to be like a 400, 500 word story was like hours of research happening mostly on the fly to be able to tell a pretty simple story that someone could just read and digest. And that told me a lot about one, how much I didn't know, and two, how much can go into a very simple piece of reporting and how a journalist's task is to make something very complicated, something that can be discernible to the average reader. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jack Jenkins. He's a national reporter for Religion News Service, and we're discussing his recent book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jack Jenkins. He's a national reporter for Religion News Service, and we're discussing his recent book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Well, now I'm going to ask you an impossible question. I'm going to ask you if you could, in two or three sentences, sum up for my listeners what we mean when we say the words religious right. I think... Yes. Any answer to that question will be a gross overgeneralization, but I think the easiest way to discern the religious right is a group of primarily conservative Christians, although not entirely, in the United States who have, over the course of the last few decades, consolidated power primarily around a couple of different issues that now have a deep and abiding influence both on the Republican Party and conservatism in the United States in general, often but not always rooted in theological arguments. Fantastic. And what I want to make clear to the listeners is that when we talk now about the religious left, we are not, if I'm understanding your book correctly, simply doing the opposite of what you just defined. That the religious left is not simply the mirror image of the religious right with the same kind of history and the same kind of politics. It's a different beast entirely. First of all, is that a correct perspective on what you're trying to say in the book? Absolutely. I think that's that's one of the core things I want people to take away from the book is that if you look at the religious left as a mirror image competing with the religious right, then you will fundamentally misunderstand how the religious left functions and the way that it exacts influence in the public sphere. So yes, I agree. Well, and one of the things to note about the difference between the religious right and the religious left is that the religious right certainly has been more visible, but also has been, if, if I'm understanding correctly, has been far more organized almost since the early 1980s when they began in some ways in book clubs and school boards up through national politics. And so am I correct in assessing that there's a significant head start factor here in terms of the difference between the political power and effectiveness of the religious right and the religious left, or am I missing something? No, I think that's it's absolutely key because one of the key things to understand is it depends on how you draw the history of the religious right, but some scholars can trace it back to the 1930s because people forget back then the core influential religious voice in American politics wasn't the religious right. It was liberal Christianity. Liberal Christianity had arguably triumphed in um, that era in the 1930s, you know, with the success of the New Deal, because that had been rooted in concepts such as the um, social gospel, which had had, you know, a heyday in the early 1900s. And so the religious, what we would now consider the religious right, or at the time, just theological fundamentalists had retreated in some regards from society for a short span. And what you got over the rest of the 20th century was those communities, one, sometimes poking their heads into the public square, but also creating their own publishing houses, creating their own schools, creating their own institutions outside of not only just mainstream liberal Christianity, but also outside of mainstream American society. 
And so by the time you got to the 1980s, when these core set of leaders, these like conservative Christian primarily leaders started really, you know, trumpeting their own agenda in the public square, they were able to fall back on this like, you know, plethora of institutions that have been created in the meantime to both get their message out, to help organize and to help set up political activism bases. And I will also note that one of the other key differences here is while there is definitely theological and ideological diversity within conservative Christianity and within the religious right broadly, there are, many would argue that that diversity, be it racially, theologically, demographically, is significantly less than you would find in the religious left, which represents all different forms of racial groups, religious groups, class groups. And that group, um, the religious left, is a hyper-complicated entity of small different coalitions move, uh, moving together that if the religious right ever was that, they had about 60 years to like you know, shore up a pretty uniform um, identity that they could then actualize in the public square, even to this day. Let me make sure that I've heard you correctly. So you were saying that earlier in the 20th century, there was a significant movement of socially progressive Christian organizations and that they were organized around and after the New Deal. And if I heard you correctly, that over time, some of those organizations began to become overtaken by more conservative forces who then used that organization's kind of base and organizing power to promulgate a different message in the 1980s and following. First of all, I just want to make sure, have I heard that part right? Yes, and, but I will add, some of those organizations just atrophied and died. Their influence and their clout in American society began to wane. And there's a whole side argument that I don't actually get into the book that, you know, in some ways, and the United States is not a theocracy, but if it was, it actually at some point was a liberal Christian theocracy. And then those institutions stopped being relevant because their ideals and their theology was already inculcated and baked into our government and our institutions, as it were. And so things like the National Council of Churches, which had a broad-based influence back in the early 20th century, have significantly less now, whereas the National Association of Evangelicals became significantly broader. So yes, there were some takeovers that you referred to, that you referred to in terms of conservative Christians taking over these institutions and then pushing a different message. But they also just like, created organizations that ended up superseding in terms of number or influence the old liberal Christian and liberal religious institutions. So if I'm hearing that correctly, would a listener be able to look into the current movements, both on the left and the right, and see lingering effects of even much earlier movements like the prohibition movement and even the abolitionist movement in some of the political dynamics that we're seeing now? Or have those earlier religious movements completely lost their influence on the present day in terms of the lingering long-term tail effects? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think you can absolutely see some of the early fights. I mean, a lot of um, historians trace it back to the fundamentalist, the modernist theological debates of the early 20th century. And when you had these Christians, but we, you know, they identified themselves as fundamentalists, these fundamentals of Christianity and these liberal Christians, which were, you know, really more involved in what was called the historical critical method. They were more critical. They, They used a lot of more scientific approaches to the Bible and like historical approaches to the Bible. And that division in early Christianity also was coupled with the movement of the social gospel, this Christian theological influence on caring for the poor and those who are downtrodden in society. And so you suddenly had fundamentalists would condemn these liberal Christians as accommodating to society, as if they're caving to politics and leaving behind the true faith. You hear those exact same arguments today of religious right individuals saying that liberal Christians either aren't really Christians or they've, you know, they have now capitulated to the, to the progressive or liberal left 
and, and have lost what is like unique and true about the faith. And so those phenomenons and those traditions still exist to this day. You can also argue Christian nationalism that has had this kind of resurgence among conservative Christians and within the religious right in the Trump era. You can trace the origins of that um, back to the 1930s when businesses got involved with conservative Christians to kind of trumpet this marriage of God and country. And, you know, you don't see that as much among modern American religious left activists. So there is that historical tie. Although there is also, there has been a a big movement in the religious left where the religious left is not and arguably cannot be just a liberal Christian movement. It is rooted in interfaith dialogue now with Jews and Muslims and Christians um, all coming together as well as Sikhs and Hindus. And, And that is actually part of its strength in the modern era that was not true back in the early 1920s. Whereas in the early 20th century, the religious left really got into ecumenism, you know, the multiple religious Christian traditions working together. In the religious left in the early 21st century is all about interfaith work. This is fascinating, and I'm going to take just a quick moment to remind listeners that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt, and that we're speaking today with Jack Jenkins. He's a national reporter for Religion News Service, and we're discussing his excellent new book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. So a moment ago, you you gave us sort of a deep dive into the long history of these movements. I now want to pick up with where you just mentioned the kind of turn of the century resurgence of some of the religious left. And in particular, in reading your book, American Prophets, I noticed something, and I want to see if I tracked this correctly in reading your book. When we look at someone like retired Bishop Gene Robinson, who was the first openly gay bishop ordained into the Episcopal Church, and it caused a major rift and conversations that are still happening today in the Episcopal Church, but also inaugurated not only in the Episcopal Church, but in other mainline denominations, real conversations about the role of LGBTQI persons within the church and the life of the church. What I noticed in your book is that as these denominations began to have activism happening within their ranks and people began to sort of train themselves for how to talk to other members of their congregations about these issues and to really kind of lobby and rally around these issues, that became in some ways a training ground for then turning out to national activism. And so what I'm seeing is, first of all, within congregations, activists who then turn and become national activists. First of all, have I seen that pattern correctly? Is there some kind of line between the religious lefts within denomination activism and then the rise of national activism on the part of the religious left. Absolutely. And in some cases, it's a one-to-one correlation, particularly in the chapter where I trace kind of the LGBTQ rights movement, particularly in white mainline Protestant churches, which I explain is more kind of indicative because of the influence they've had on society in general, not because they are the only faith-based LGBTQ movement, but like what you find, and what I found really surprising, is when you trace their history, you had these internal disputes within the Episcopal tradition, the Methodist tradition, the Lutheran tradition, and then you had national LGBTQ rights groups then go meet with them and say, okay, can you help us out in this marriage equality fight in, in this part of the country or in this state? And you know, Supreme Court decisions about LGBTQ rights and same-sex marriage would start referencing these faith groups and these faith communities that were affirming of LGBTQ identities and relationships. And so what was once a, an internal theological battle within these traditions, very specific, very rooted in their ecclesiology and theology, then became the language through which politicians would endorse same-sex marriage. You know, they would invoke their faith to say, 
oh, I'm, I support same-sex marriage, and, I, and it's not incongruous with my faith. In fact, it's inspired by my faith. And so you see, once that foundation was laid in these faith communities, it gave cover or gave um, inspiration to these politicians to be able to endorse those causes in the public sphere. So there is a lot of that that you'll find in my book. Um, advocates that you know they have to fight with their own first. That is their first. Their first campaign is against or within their own tradition before they then broaden that out and you know telescope out to you know address the greater nation. Another thread that I saw very clearly in many of your chapters is the two-word phrase community organizing or community organizer. And with, in lowercase, we might think, oh, that's just simply a person with a certain affinity. But I come from Chicago. And so we understand that when we hear the words community organizer, that that actually has a deep history of its own in terms of progressive activism. So briefly for my listeners, fill us in on what the history of community organizing is in the broad sphere politically. Right. When we community organizing has has definitely developed. I mean, arguably, community organizing has always just been a part of like human organizing (laughs) when humans organize themselves um, for change, irrespective of of era that has always been there. But in terms of like this almost professional and scientific approach to it. You know, we have people like in the 20th century, you know, it's Saul Alinsky organizing workers. You have people that you have people like Barack Obama, who he was a community organizer in Chicago, specifically trying to get often you know, primarily community organizers, or at least those who identify as such, are working with people who the poor, the downtrodden, the dispossessed in societies. And they really early on, one of the early stages of this movement was rooted in inner cities. That is where a lot of this work got done in the mid 20th century and the late 20th century. And you had these groups like PICO, which now goes by the title Faith in Action, and Gamaliel and DART and Industrial Areas Foundation. You had these different organizing groups that all sprung up in these cities to help address issues of inequality and housing, et cetera, et cetera. But what you often found is those early organizing efforts, you know, what they would lean on in order to build power where there wasn't it. Right. You know, they were often having direct fights with local um, officials, local or, you know, mayors. And the other things that they could turn to to be able to build power were congregations, were religious groups, where they had people who were already gathered once a week and throughout the week to to do things like, you know, make food banks and to worship. And so community organizers worked really closely with these worshiping communities, and they became a key component of community organizing in all of these cities. Now, there's a lot of overlap with community organizing and activism organizing. The difference often gets blurred, but it's not a coincidence that you often see you know, these local fights over housing and economics turn into campaigns about racial justice and voting rights. They, they flow into each other pretty easily, which is why you see someone like Martin Luther King Jr. in the mid-20th century leaning heavily on faith groups as the organizations of support for, his, for the civil rights movement. All that leads us to someone like Barack Obama, who when he was organizing in Chicago, and this is something that is mentioned in passing, but often, and I get into it a little bit in my book, you know, when he was an organizer, he was a faith-based organizer. The, the, the organization that he was working with was primarily working with congregations in Chicago. And so it was, he was an, arguably a progressive faith-rooted organizer, and it was through that experience that he cites that actually led him to become an, a confessing Christian. 
And that's not altogether an unusual story for um, people who get into community organizing. So as you being from Chicago, you know this way better than I do in terms of the influence and the impact of these organizations on the civic life in these um, inner cities. But that is often the root of not only these community organizing efforts that are very localized, but those organizations end up being very influential when there are national pushes for policy and legislation at the federal level. Those organizations at the local level become actualized and have begun, often been a crucial component of the religious left throughout the 20th and 21st century. Well, you mentioned Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and one of the things about the movement of around him and the wider civil rights movement was exactly what you said, that they really organized through the churches. The other way that they organized was through small businesses. And so when I think mm-hmm. about the, the freedom schools, the freedom schools were either in the back room of a church or they were in the back room of a beauty salon or a barber shop. And right. oftentimes progressive politics is stereotyped as being anti-business. And so one of the things that I'm curious about is what role has business and small business played in the rise and support of the religious left movement that you've observed in the United States? And that's a really interesting question because I do think that's actually an, an undercovered area is like, like you said, small businesses in particular, because often what you find in these communities, different religious communities, whether that's historically black Protestants, whether that's some Muslim communities in Dearborn, Michigan, whether that's Jewish communities in various parts of the country, or even mainline Protestant communities and others, is that if they have a sense of community, the church or the synagogue or the mosque is tied to that, there are often businesses that are attached to that same community that will sponsor those local events, right? So if, if the mosque puts on a food pantry or, you know, like an interfaith gathering, you will often see that one of the groups underwriting that is a local um, business that is connected to that mosque or that faith community, someone who sits in the pews or in the back of the worship service or in the front quite often to help fund those efforts. And so those businesses have played a role, particularly at the local level of helping fund and get these organizations off the ground because they, you know, community organizing is very time intensive and labor intensive and it it is often not free. And so unable to have someone dedicated to doing this kind of work, this kind of activism, you require finances. Now, there has also been the role of, you know, grant um, giving organizations. And that's something I touch a little bit on in the book that sometimes these different organ, um, religious left organizations are all fighting for the same money from the same three or four entities. But what you see is while those big grants from big progressive entities that include the same progressive entities that fund secular activism spaces in the United States, you do see that when you get down to the local level, it is those local businesses that help fund this effort because it's either that or crowdfunding and not every community has the capacity to do that. So I do think that's actually a really interesting question and probably worth the book unto itself to kind of acknowledge how these and kind of dig into how these local businesses have kept activism afloat for quite some time, because if unless somebody funds it, you, know, you can't have an activist out there full time doing this kind of work. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jack Jenkins. He's a national reporter with Religion News Service and a former senior religion reporter for Think Progress. His work has been published in a number of publications, including The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The New Yorker. But we're talking today about his recent book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. 
As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're talking with Jack Jenkins. He's a national reporter for Religion News Service and a former senior religion reporter for Think Progress. His work has been published widely, including in the Atlantic and the Washington Post, and he's cited regularly in publications like the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the Wall Street Journal. He's a graduate of Presbyterian College and has a Master of Divinity from Harvard University. And today, we're talking about his excellent recent book, American Prophets, the Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Well, early on in your book, American Prophets, you reference Reverend Jennifer Butler, who was the founding director of Faith in Public Life. As she is getting sort of set up in that position and is being hired for that position, something rang out to me because she was advised as she began her work to stay away from the Democratic National Committee. I'm wondering about that side comment. What is the relationship between the progressive religious left? And again, we've talked about how broad it is and how difficult it is to put all that in one basket. But how, how is the relationship between the progressive religious left and the Democratic Party? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. And uh, I'll note that she was advised to stay away from the DNC, according to her, by John Podesta, the founder of the Center for American Progress, you know, a former staffer in Bill Clinton's administration and the chair of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. And that comment also stuck out to me because and it speaks, I think, a lot um, to a lot of how the religious left gains its legitimacy and also kind of how the left works differently than the right and the religious left in particular works differently than the right. That's because religious groups in particular who are belong to disenfranchised communities, whether that's um, African-American Protestants, Muslims, poor whites, you know, there's like a lot of different groups that have felt, you know, unset upon and put out by various different administrations. And so they are often distrustful of hero governments to begin with for a lot of really hard-earned historical reasons. And so one thing you often hear as a refrain when you speak to religious left activists is that they are not tied to one party or ideal. Now, the policy proposals they might put forward are usually only put forward by one party right now, which is the Democratic Party. But theologically, one, they don't feel that God chooses one political party. That's an axiom you often heard referenced in religious left circles, often also one that was repeated by uh, Pete Buttigieg when he ran for president this last democratic cycle. He repeated, repeated that same axiom quite regularly. But also, practically speaking, they often don't want to tie their fortunes to one party. So while they welcome this idea 
of a party embracing their ideals and their policy proposals and, and getting them passed. There are a lot of these religious left communities, which come from these groups that have often had to advocate for themselves aggressively until the government capitulated, as opposed to, you know, willingly sided with them because of that's how party works. You know, they're very wary of embracing one party. And so, so why, they don't want to tie their fortunes to that. Now, this also speaks to, and I mentioned this in the introduction to the book, a lot of the activists I profile in this book do not like or endorse the term religious left. And they don't like that because they see that as a reflection of the religious right, whose methods and ideals they abhor. And, and one of the things that they mention often is that the religious right they feel is you know, a subsidiary of the Republican Party. It's attached to that party in a very real way, and they don't ever want to be put into that trap. Now, to be clear, one of the criticisms of the religious left is that they often, because they don't attach themselves to a party or greater systems of power, often lack the power that comes with that, right? There is an advantage to being attached to power. But in you know these religious left communities who often champion what's called the prophetic tradition, prophets often decry what's wrong with society. They don't end up occupying positions of power. And so that's one of the great weaknesses and one of the great strengths of the religious left is that they're at their strongest when they are protesting those in power, regardless if they have an R or a D next to their name, not necessarily when they are occupying that position of power. So that's where I think that comment that John Podesta, who to be clear is, you know, deeply connected to the party and ideology. That's where I think that comment came from when he made, if he made that recommendation to Jen Butler. I'm struck by kind of what you, what you're saying there in terms of closeness to power. And uh, I, I, and I don't have it ready to hand and I apologize. Maybe you can refresh my memory, but I believe it was Russell Moore at the time of the the endorsement of Jerry Falwell of Donald Trump basically tweeted something that was in line with with what you're saying, that we as people of faith need to be very wary of confusing earthly power with other kinds of power. I'm, I'm thinking about the calls that are saying basically that we need to not be allying ourselves with things like the, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, because that gets us too close to worldly power. So my question would be, how does one actually enact policy if one is not close to power? If one is wary of institutional power and the way that things get done is through institutional power in our country, how then will the religious left ever have political efficacy regardless of what it calls itself? Right. And uh, two pieces there. And the last one is a giant existential question about the religious left. And I think it's it's something I kind of leave open ended in the book. I, I will know, like you said, Russell Moore, it was an interesting critic of Trump because he was very, despite belonging to the what is often referred to as the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, which people often refer to as a component of the religious right. Russell Moore, you know, was very critical of, of hitching your wagons to one party, and it, it got him some blowback, and was very critical of, of Jerry Falwell for endorsing Trump the way he did for that. And, and that is, you know, some people argue that is why Russell Moore has since become, you know, the punching bag for many Christian conservatives who see his leadership there as, as not as stalwarted up as it should be in embracing Donald Trump, and which leads me to the religious left, because one of the ways that the religious right has, has actualized on power is in the courts. They've been very good about you know, pushing certain arguments in the courts and getting certain conservative judges you know, put into places of power. And at the voting booth, you know, the, the religious right is a significant voting block, and they deeply prioritize that as a way to actualize power. 
the religious left, and to be fair, they do have pockets of influential voting blocks. Usually, it, 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 this is true of the left in general. It's not one single monolith that shows up on election day. It's a bunch of smaller groups. I mean, one of the case examples was when the defeat of the Republican income, of the Republican candidate in Alabama recently that, that allowed Doug Jones to become the first Democratic senator from that state in a long time. Many people trace that. In addition to his candidate having a lot of his opposition having a lot of problems, you had a lot of African-American Protestants that showed up to election day that day. And so there is an element to the religious left that does actualize power. And, it, you know, African-American Protestants are also a big reason why Joe Biden is now the Democratic nominee. However, more often than not, the religious left, its great source of strength isn't at the ballot box. In fact, their numbers are dwindling in that regard. The religiously unaffiliated are a larger growing group in the Democratic Party than those who are religiously affiliated. More often what you see is the religious left as an activist force. That is what made the civil rights movement so successful. And, and is why, you know, it wasn't that there was majority of support across the country for all of the campaigns that Martin Luther King launched. It was that the activists were able to put pressure on specific places that eventually would tip the scales one way or another. And I talk about that in the introductory chapter and the push for the Affordable Care Act and the role of activists in those spaces and how Catholic nuns played a big role in that. I talk about how, you know, with the Standing Rock protest, the influence of Native American and indigenous activists who invoked their faith when um, fighting for environmental causes. I talk about immigration activists who definitely don't have the majority support of the American public, but were able to, like, you know, basically stand up to both the Obama administration and the Trump administration on behalf of immigrant rights, often putting themselves, their, their churches in, in technical legal risk for having done so. All of that is the poetry of protest. And the poetry of protest has proven itself efficacious in American history. But to get to your ultimate point, it really is most efficacious when there is a whole lot of people protesting around the same thing. And the religious left has struggled at times to find a uniform legislative agenda or policy agenda or even activist agenda. It's a lot of different groups operating with their own agendas. And one of the things that Trump's ascendancy, his election, gave the religious left is you know, a, a basically a collective thing to push against, a, an individual and an administration that they could protest in mass against because they saw Trump and his administration as an existential threat to the survival of either their, their communities or those that they advocate for. And if Trump were to be defeated in the November election, it is unclear how activists in the left in general and activists within the religious left in particular would respond, whether they would still have that uniform agenda and be able to continue to push in a democratic administration for things that they want, or if they would return to kind of how they were in the Obama administration, which is they did have influence, but it was more piecemeal and specific campaigns and only certain moments. So I think that to answer your ultimate question, the religious left is arguably not as interested in trying to galvanize a collective block of power so much as they are whatever the moral concern they have at the time is. Like that seems to be their driving force more often than not. And sometimes that means that they are completely atomized and unable to get anything done. And sometimes it means they help pass the most important pieces of legislation in the past century or two. And so it, it's just less predictable whether or not the religious left is going to be powerful than it is the religious right. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Jack Jenkins. He's national reporter for Religion News Service, and we're talking about his recent book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Well, we've been talking about how different 
organizations on what we might loosely call the religious left are wary of alliances with national institutions like the Democratic Party. But I'm also thinking of the Democratic Convention a couple of cycles ago when there was a platform discussion and there was the question of whether or not God and religion should be included in the Democratic National Platform. And that plank of the platform passed, but it passed over loud, shouting, vocal opposition of no, no, no from the floor of the Democratic Convention. And so I'm, I'm now going to flip the question and say, how wary is the Democratic Party in your reporting of alliances with religious organizations? Are they hesitant or do they see this as political opportunity or as a real kind of deeply forged alliance? So the short answer is it depends on the era and who's in charge. I will note that like that, that vote that you're referring to and putting God back into the Democratic platform. Part of the reason for those no's were because there was coupled with that a vote on Israel-Palestine, which has proven to be very controversial. Although, as I note in the book, also deeply a conversation that's happening in the religious left and actually a part of the activism there. So it's not irrelevant to that topic. And the people at the time noted that there was actually a section on faith that didn't mention the word God that was actually larger than even their section on same-sex marriage in the Democratic platform in 2012. But What you get is that you do have these people in the Democratic Party who care deeply about the relationship that the party has to faith groups and faith communities and sees um, and see the efficacy of that relationship is very important or crucial. You know, you have these advocates at the highest levels of the Democratic Party who have long championed any relationship that the Democratic Party can have to faith. However, it is true that you have a group of individuals for whom you know, who may be atheist, agnostic, or religiously unaffiliated, or simply are religious, but don't want to have any attachment of religion to power, who are deeply skeptical of that. Now, I want to be clear, that's not uniform. There's a lot of religiously unaffiliated folks who are showing up to William Barber's Poor People's Campaign protests and, you know, shouting and chanting along with everyone else. And so, too, do you have quite a few religious left activists who are very clear to include people of no faith in their coalitions. However, it does create this interesting tension where in the past you've seen a lot of people who identify as Democrats or progressives or liberals be kind of wary about faith groups that wander into their spaces as activists. They're particularly wary about those who identify as conservative Christians but also vote Democrat, but they are generally wary with the the role of faith in any sort of governmental structure, much less a party. However, what I've seen that's really interesting about the Trump era is that as these religious left activists, and I, I, I you know, trace this in my book, have become more prominent underneath Trump because they, were, they have been doing so much activism beforehand that when this spurt of resistance activists occurred underneath Trump, this groundswell of protest, they were heading up a lot of these organizations and efforts because they had already been doing it for so long. And so when you have people like Linda Sarsour, who is a controversial figure, but she was one of the four leading organizers of the, um, the Women's March, one of the largest protests in American history now. You have people like William Barber, who became this prominent activist who was pushing to preserve the Affordable Care Act during the Republican effort to repeal and replace it, which I also chronicle in the book. You know, suddenly you have these people who were previously skeptical of religion and its role in politics in the Democratic Party kind of saying, okay, well, if, if they do it kind of like how William Barber does it, like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm all right with that. All right, that's, that's better. And so there, there does seem to be this interesting relationship that's forged basically in the streets where people have earned back, their faith leaders have earned back their credibility among secular activists by showing up. 
And I will say this even occurs among um, among groups you otherwise wouldn't think. Uh, there's a whole chapter in my book where I trace Ferguson and um, in Charlottesville, and I talk about how in African American um, communities where previously the church has held a prominent role of um, leading activism, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, which wasn't explicitly tied to the church at all and remain and isn't now, faith leaders that have become a, comp- a key component of that protest community have earned it in the streets, quite literally, of Ferguson and elsewhere. And that seems to have been what has happened recently, is that while I'm not sure that a lot of these folks who have been skeptical of religion's role in the public sphere have abandoned that sentiment, they've started to carve out some exceptions, saying that, okay, if you, we are, in fact, on the same team and you have proven yourself worthy, I mean, worthy of my you know, attention and my, me joining up with your email list is quite often how this works, you know, maybe we can all work together. Whether that holds if a Democrat gets elected, I don't know. But right now I'm seeing far less tension in that space than I saw three, four years ago. So I know anecdotally that in the 1950s, the president of the United States is reported to have had regular phone conversations with the head of the Methodist Church, the head of the Presbyterian Church, those kinds of those kinds of very familial connections. And when we've had Republican presidents, they, they have oftentimes reached out to faith leaders as counselors. But one of the things that jumped out to me from your book, American Prophets, that I would not have expected was the outsized role that the Catholic Church continues to play in national politics. And around the Affordable Care Act, but otherwise, both those who are kind of in religious orders, so I'm thinking, for example, of what we call the nuns or the nuns on the bus— and also the, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Both were heavy hitters around the ACA, but also they are involved and influential in other aspects of American politics. That was unexpected. What are we to make of the role of these religious organizations in current American politics, not just in terms of grassroots activist organizations, but kind of large institutions like the USCCB? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and the, the, the initial reason why it's just math. I mean, the Catholic Church is just one of the largest um, religious groups, and the Catholic Catholicism is one of the largest religious groups in the country. Depending on how you count it, it's actually the largest single block of religious individuals. And because of that, you know, the organizations they form represent a lot of people. And while it, you know, the United States is certainly not a majority Catholic nation by any stretch, if you have a, a large block in which they, they all identify the same way, you're going to have a few people whose, whose heads get turned with the prominent organizations, the prominent Catholic groups like the USCCB that you mentioned start getting involved. But what I, I will note that what's interesting in that opening chapter where I kind of talk about this sparring that occurred between Catholic nuns in the United States and Catholic bishops in the United States around the fight over the Affordable Care Act is that Catholicism is so big to the point where it's just not a monolith. And so whereas it may have been at different points in American history, at this point, you really have two or even three different competing visions for how Catholicism should operate in the public square in the United States. And the story of that Affordable Care Act fight is basically the nuns usurping the bishops and and coming out in favor of the Affordable Care Act when the bishops were not going to do so and actually paying a price within the church. You know, they the Catholic hierarchy came down on the nuns for having done so. But. You know, this is where American politics comes into play. When you do polling, Catholic nuns tend to poll way higher than Catholic bishops in the United States. So while they occupy a significantly diminished position within the church compared to the, you know, the ecclesiology of the Catholic church where men hold the hierarchy, you know, Catholic nuns are more popular in the United States. And when you have a democracy, that really matters. And so 
I think that something that you're getting at is that you can't, if you're the president of this country or even a local lawmaker, and you see these communities fighting amongst themselves over you know, legislation that you're involved in, you can't ignore them because they will be able to tip the scales one way or another. And you know, I, this is Barack Obama saying this, not me, when I, uh, when I say that the Catholic nuns are one of the key reasons why the Affordable Care Act got passed. And people in D.C. nod knowingly. They say, oh, of course, of course that's the case. And that might surprise a lot of Americans to know how influential these groups can be. And they are not the only group like that. You will find, particularly among pieces of legislation or policies that affect specific groups, religious groups are going to get involved with that. And you're going to have to deal with their internal theological politics to get something done. As long as there are people organizing themselves together and you're running a country that has to take them seriously, you're never going to be able to get away from the influence of faith in the United States. So you have been reporting on the deep history of the rise of the religious left and religion more generally and its intersection with politics. Has your faith changed appreciably during that period of reporting? And if so, how has it changed? So this is, I actually appreciate this question because it is the challenge of the journalist to extend beyond biases and influence. I am not a journalist who thinks that, that journalists should be automatons who pretend they don't have emotions, feelings, views, et cetera. I think what makes journalism inspiring is that a journalist you know, has those things and still strives to present a fair reading of what has occurred, even if it makes people they like uncomfortable, even if it makes people they don't like very comfortable. Those are things, that's the challenge of a journalist. And so, I mean, has my faith changed over the course of my reporting? Absolutely. You know, for me, if you have a faith that cares about people and cares about, you know, what God is doing in the world, when you do the kind of reporting that I've done, which is involved going down to the border and, you know, watching during the child migrant crisis, 2014, 2015, I was down there reporting on faith groups that were taking in um, these families, you know, usually um, mothers and their children these Catholic groups along the border that were, you know, offering them respite when so few others were. You can't not be affected by that. You can't not have questions about both why would God let this happen? And then also, isn't it great that God is providing these people to be able to offer care in these circumstances? And I think that's one of the unique things that I get as a religion reporter is that I cover some of the worst things. I cover Catholicism. It's like a third of my beat at the Religion News Service, and that requires me to go deep dives into the sex abuse scandal, and it's awful. Um, I cover a lot of churches who participate in scandals, whether financial or sexual or abuse or physical or you know any number of things. They kind of off. I mean, like not kind of. They're genuinely awful. And then I also get to cover groups who are there helping, regardless of their political disposition, when no one else will. And I think that has really challenged my faith to say, you know, that it's not as simple as establishing a mental dogma of, you know, my beliefs and my people are always going to be doing the best thing in any given scenario. It, it often isn't the case. The founding theologian of my tradition is John Calvin, who gets in pretty dark theology and when it comes to sin, you know, we're irreparably sinful. And that theological idea for me has been reified by being a religion reporter is that sin is pervasive. But one thing that's deeply challenging to that is I have to be able to see the, the work of God in those who stand up against injustice, those who feed the hungry and stand with the homeless. And it is never as easy as attributing a political or ideological or racial label to these groups of people who do that. I am often inspired and moved as a person when I run into the surprises. And the faith community writ large has constantly surprised me as a reporter, and it has shaken within me any semblance of a faith 
that is easy. And it requires me to have a faith that is complex and hard and a constant conversation. And I'm actually grateful to all those who have let me report on them for that. Well, Jack Jenkins, when I read the introduction to your book, American Prophets, you said, okay, for the next several chapters, I'm just going to tell some stories. And I thought I knew what I was getting into. But I will, I will say that your book, the complexity, the thoroughness, the depth of reporting in each of the chapters, I learned so much and was surprised by so much. And I feel like I walked away from reading it so much more able to participate in American political life than when I walked into the book. I just want to thank you, first of all, for the time it took to both report it, but also to write it, and also for the time that you've taken so generously today to talk to us about it. I thank you so much. That's the highest compliment a reporter can hear, is that people took something away or even read what they wrote. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for having me. We've been speaking today with Jack Jenkins. He's national reporter for Religion News Service and a former senior religion reporter for Think Progress. His work has been widely published in a number of publications, including The Atlantic and The Washington Post, and he's regularly cited in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times. He's a graduate of Presbyterian College, and he also has his Master of Divinity from Harvard University. We've been discussing his recent book out from Harper One called American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.